is Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. It says, At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's begin with a word of prayer this evening. God, we are thankful for um, the opportunity that we have to open your word and to explore what it has for us. We are thankful for this season where we can think about hope and peace and joy and love. We are thankful for this time where we can think about your son, his life, his death, his resurrection, his investment in us as your people. God, I ask this evening that you would uh, protect us from error, that you would um, safeguard your word, and that you would move in power through your Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds, and that we, we would leave here changed, that we would leave here conformed into the image of your Son, that we would leave here encouraged and empowered and excited. God, for those of us who are in a difficult place, I ask that you would be present and that you would make yourself known to each and every one of us. We ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is really the first Christmas where uh, Kate and I's son, Abram, gets it. Uh, this is the first time when he seems to care about opening packages under the tree. This is the first time where he is excited about our annual tradition where we head out to Nichols Farms and I take my mighty axe in hand and go chop down our $27, whatever you can fit in your car, tree. Um, he is, he's invested in that. And even this year, he was looking at some trees saying, maybe this one, maybe that one, maybe something else. But one of the things that, that Abe has come uh, to be pretty fond of here in the, in the last month or so is his Fisher-Price nativity scene. It's got all these little figures and he just likes to play with them. And it's got this 
barn-type structure, and the angel is supposed to go on top, but it just depending on Abe's mood, you might find a sheep up there, or Mary, or Joseph, or Shepherd, or whatever. He just likes to, to, to play. Um, and it, it reminded me of when I was a kid. I can't really think back to the time when I was almost two, but I can think back to my childhood remembering moments like what we just saw up here. Moments where, uh, for us, when we were kids, it was our one friend's mom who would always throw on that big white sheet and throw on a blue sash and then shuffle down the aisle as Mary and her husband, who always had a very finely kept beard, nailed the part of Joseph every year and would just kind of walk down in song. Sometimes there was a donkey to accompany her. So it was like, it was a fake donkey, Mandy. It wasn't a real live animal production. It was pretty, pretty low tech back in the day. But as a child, I came to understand who Mary was through the eyes of my church and through the eyes of the people that were around me and through the things that I saw like my Fisher-Price nativity set. For some of you that might be a little bit more cultured, perhaps your idea and your vision of who Mary is is informed by classic works of art. I doubt that that's a lot of you, but perhaps for some of you, you know these paintings of kind of the, the Mary who is very very peaceful and very just composed and you, you learn a lot from her demeanor and her face. You can see here that she's, she's very peaceful. She's got it all together. Uh, for others of you that maybe grew up in an even more traditional upbringing, you understand or you're re- recalling images of the sacred heart or the immaculate heart of Mary that at times was, was pierced in representation of the seven sorrows of Mary. For the very cultured folks in the room, perhaps you know this more current uh, piece of art, which is Kim Kardashian, who um, took on the role of Mary. She also took on the role of, of Jesus and some sort of demonic force in this very strange postmodern art show. I doubt that this is the thing that informs you, but I think that we all have an idea and an an image of who Mary is. But tonight, I just want to think for a moment with you and basically have a conversation with you around this idea of, of the real Mary. Not the Fisher Price figurine or not the pieces of, of, of art, uh, not the ladies from your church if you grew up in that setting, but, but what this very young woman might have been like, what she might have been processing at the moment when an angel shows up in her room and says, Mary, I've got a job for you to do. If we could think about just the the mindset of this, what could have been a 12 to 16-year-old girl, what she would have been confronted with in that moment as the angel says to her, Mary, you're going to carry a child, and this child is going to change the world. We're familiar with that image uh, where the angel shows up and and begins by saying, don't be afraid. A lot of times when angels show up, that's their first little bit, and I think that makes sense because if I was kind of sitting there in this, whatever that might have looked like, I think that pants would need to be changed, um, I would need to be comforted and, and, and held in that moment. So that, that message of don't be afraid is a good one. But here, when Mary receives this message, 
her response to all of it is, we're not given a lot of, of information here, but she responds with these words. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. This is a 12 to 16-year-old virgin who hears, hey, you're carrying a child, and this child is God's son, and this child of yours is going to change the course of human history, and her response is, I am the Lord's servant. May it be unto me according to your word. These are, these are images that don't make a lot of sense. It, it, for us, as we're thinking about this story, the Fisher-Price little figurine of Mary makes more sense to us. It's more tangible because for a kid to say this, it doesn't seem to fit our conception of the 12 to 16-year-old girls that we might know. Um, a few years ago, my nieces, they're much too old for this now, but back in the day, like on their Christmas wish list was always stuff from justice. And it was one of the worst moments of my life as a 20-something-year-old man walking into Justice or the Limited 2 and just kind of looking around for something with sparkles and saying, this one's got to be it, <laughs> and paying for it and getting the heck out of there. But our image of, of these people in that category doesn't seem to fit this statement that comes from her. I think that one of the, the things that we forget to notice is the consequences that, that may have been surrounding her in this moment from the time when the angel says, hey Mary, we've got a job for you to do, to the time when she says, may it be unto me according to your word. There's things that no doubt would have gone through her mind. Consequences, if you will, if she would have just played this out as a 12 to 16 year old kid. The first consequence that most guys think of is the consequences for her marriage. Now, guys, if you're in a situation where your wife-to-be or your girlfriend comes up to you and says, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, it's God's baby, I doubt that that's going to fly too much with us. So as she might be hearing this message, she would think, no way on earth is Joseph going to believe this? No way on earth is this marriage that we are supposed to have, is it gonna make it? No way on earth is this going to be able to withstand this, this relationship that I'm trying to have. For an ancient uh, Israelite at this time, her engagement was, in a sense, her legal betrothal and tie to Joseph. This wasn't like in our context where you put a ring on it, as Beyonce would would tell you, and then you have that time period where you can still back out and change your mind. For an ancient Israelite, it was different. Once those uh, vows were exchanged and once those terms were agreed upon between the two families, it was kind of a done deal. Now, you would have to wait for the guy to do whatever it is that he needed to do to prepare a room, a house, or whatever for his wife, and that might take about a year or so, but, but Mary was legally married to Joseph at this time in her life not knowing how he would react to this, this message and this reality that she is now carrying a child. There were consequences for her because of her status to Joseph as his legal wife. She would be labeled not just someone who has sex outside of marriage, but someone who is now an adulteress. And being viewed in those terms according to those within the community would have been a, a burden for her to bear. Not only that, but she was facing an adulteress's punishment. This is the harsh truth of the world of the Bible, which is very different from our own. But if we're going to dip back into Old Testament law for an adulteress, they could potentially be facing death. 
for those that were accused of, of certain things and wanted to, to petition uh, whether or not they actually did those things, there was also something built into the law which was known as the ordeal of bitter water. Now, this is very much going to put us into a completely different cultural context, but stay with me here. Now, if a, if a guy had some suspicions that his wife was cheating on him, he could evoke what is called this bitter water ordeal where the wife would go to the priest and the priest would take some dirt from the ground and some holy water and write out a curse and put the ink into this concoction and she would agree to the terms and basically drink the water and if she was guilty then in this ancient world how they would process this if she was guilty then the baby inside of her would miscarry and if she was not guilty, she would carry it to term and, and every, everybody would go on as if it was okay. So in her mind, as this, as this announcement that she is now pregnant was brought to her, she could have been thinking about how Joseph would deal with this. She could have been thinking about the potential ramifications of the community, her potential death perhaps, a potential bitter water ordeal that she might have to go through and put herself on the line. One of the things that I don't think we think of as well is what the consequences would be for her kids. Her now bastard children in the eyes of the community would be cast off and not allowed to participate in certain uh, ceremonial activities. She might have been thinking through and processing all of this, this stuff. And for, for an, another thing to, to consider as well is it would just be her and her child. And in this time, that was a death sentence to be removed from the people that would take care of you. And in the midst of all of that processing what was going to happen. One scholar says, instantaneously, Mary's mind would have connected her pregnancy to being a sota, which is a Hebrew term for a suspected uh, adulteress, back to Numbers 5 and that whole bitter water ordeal, and to the public humiliation of a potential trial and how Joseph, her Torah-observant husband, would respond. See, we know the end of the story. We know that Joseph stays with her. We know that things work out and they end up in the, the manger giving birth to Jesus. But for Mary, upon the announcement of her new job, she did not know how it would turn out. She did not know what friends would leave her. She did not know what family would cast her aside. She did not know the weight of this burden and privilege what it would cost her. And in the midst of all of that, she's a kid. When we go back to these, these I love our version of, of this because we've got little Joanna who makes all those boys look, look, look okay. Without Joanna, I think we'd be lacking a little bit of the, you know, something. We'd be lacking something without Joanna, so she fills that, that need and that's good. Um, we did have a mohawk up there which was Appropriate, I think culturally, first century, probably Mohawks. Okay. Um, for us to think through Mary, it's a 12 to 16 year old kid that's having her life completely and totally turned upside down. The amount of charisma, the amount of just courage, the amount of I can't even think of the terms here that it would take for her to utter those words was completely ridiculous, especially when reviewing her from the lens of a 12 to 16-year-old kid. 
one artist does seem to convey some of this. It's not the Kim Kardashians. It's not the, the, the very pale-faced Mary who looks so composed. But here, this is Tanner's um, picture, the Annunciation from 1898. And you can see here, sort of, this is a, a childlike Mary that's taking in this announcement with some forethought. She's taking in all of the things that the angel is, 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 is telling her that's laying at her feet and she is processing these things and I think this image provides us with something tangible that we can maybe hold on to as she's wrestling with the potential consequences surrounding her husband and her kids and herself and her safety. Again, Scott McKnight leads us to think about Mary in a different way where he wants us to see her as a child facing these sorts of big discussions. It's begging questions about how and why would Mary say the things that she says to the angel. McKnight says, because of Mary's trust in God and in spite of all of these threatening thoughts of accusation and rebuke, Mary uttered those courageous words that changed history. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. May it be. I think that when we put Mary in her context, it's not like this emotionless, lobotomized Mary that just says, okay. What I picture here, and this is a bit of reading in, is a precocious preteen who says, bring it. The angel shows up and says, Mary, we've got a job for you to do. And Mary's just got the, the amount of character necessary to be able to the potential fallout of this and say, it's go time. Mary is the one who would, in a sense, change human history by being obedient to this call and then letting it play out, not necessarily stopping because of the potential consequences. And for me, this moves us away from the Fisher-Price idea of who Mary is and puts us into a completely different realm and lets us see her in a different way. All of this is fueled by Mary's very subversive hope. And again, as a child going to her relative's house and begins to sing this song that says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. There's keys within this song that Mary sings which is traditionally known as the Magnificat that put her in a context as one who wasn't going to take junk from anybody. She continues, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And now she launches into the picture of who her God is. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. And this is where Mary starts to get a bit subversive because the powers that be, if they were to hear some of this language, they would be scared of this child who was being obedient because of what she knew this would bring about in the scope of human history. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just 
as he promised our ancestors. Credit to Mary's parents because they have instilled in her this understanding of the story of God's people where God would be victorious, where their God was one who was powerful and who was looking out for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, the people that Mary encompassed at that time. And she said, he will throw down rulers from their thrones. The rich, they're going to go away hungry. He's going to feed the poor. And this is all happening through this beautiful privilege that she has to bring this baby into the world. Now, wrapped up with that was all of these ideas about who Jesus would be. He would be the one that would take Rome out of the picture. He would be the one that would put Herod in his place. This song, if you think about it, uh, in in terms of its context, was very anti-establishment. It was very anti, at least oppressive government because what she's saying is the, the rulers and the leaders, God's got something different happening here. The poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, the people that don't have a chance, they are going to be the ones that receive goodness and grace and mercy. Perhaps she's contemplating all of these ideas, being entrusted with this task in the moment. I don't know, it's, it's a bit of a, a reading in, but here we see in this song, a kid, a child, who understands the calling on her life and understands who God is and what God is trying to do through her. This song that she sings is a song about justice. It's a song about the kingdom invading into earth, and it's sung by a kid. It's interesting because when you think about Jesus, his very first sermon in Nazareth, according to Luke, is this, this beautiful image of justice. I have come to set the oppressed free, to break the chains of those in bondage. I have come to give sight to the blind. And you hear in the background of Jesus' teaching his mom from the very beginning who has said and instilled into him, this is what God's going to do. And this is what God's going to do through you. We're all, as parents, we're entrusted with a unique opportunity to raise kids. Even for non-parents in the room, you're, you're... invested with a potential relationship that you have with someone that can be life-giving and transformative for them. But if we understand Mary and her role as mom to Jesus in light of all these things that she's thinking and wrestling with and believing and how they have shown fruit in Jesus' ministry, I think it's pretty interesting. So Mary is fueled by this subversive hope of what Jesus is going to do. But I want to kind of leave us on a, on a something, uh, a different image of what Mary is going to be about, and that is Mary's unexpected reality. She's got these beliefs about Jesus and what he was going to do before he shows up. We can see her fingerprints on his ministry throughout and the things that Jesus does, but we also see the way that this plays out is completely different than what Mary had anticipated. We've only got a handful of stories of Jesus interacting with his mom in the Gospels. One is this strange story where they're celebrating the Passover and they're in Jerusalem and they leave and they're a couple days away and Jesus is back in the temple kind of teaching the the local rabbis and that's weird because Mary goes back and says, Jesus, what are you doing? And he says, 
don't you know I'd be about my father's business? Really weird, strange Jesus. Okay, that's, that's whatever, 12-year-old Jesus, get back in the car, we're going home. Um, one of the stories, though, in Mark that we looked at in chapter 3 is Mary and some of the family hears what Jesus is doing, and they want to go get him because they believe that he's lost it. They believe that he's completely um, out, of, out of sorts. And Jesus is, is teaching, and, and they show up, and somebody says, hey, hey, Jesus, your mom and your family is at the door, and Jesus says in that very esoteric way, who are my mother and my brothers? Those that do the will of my father are my mother and my brothers. And you're just kind of thinking, oh, gosh, Mary, that's got to sting a little bit because, you know, mom's right there, and he's like, goes into this weird moment of, of teaching. And it's not until the crucifixion that we hear from Mary again. And I think that in, in this story of Jesus talking to his mom and the few interchanges that he has, he's kind of shifting the relationship where he's getting to a point of saying, hey, mom, remember those songs you used to sing about me? Hey, mom, you remember those announcements from, from angels and you remember those things that I'm supposed to do? Are you still on board? Because it's gonna look a lot different than what you think. It's going to be completely different than me riding in on a white horse with a sword and just ending Roman oppression and ending this government that is oppressive. It's going to be a little bit different. And I need to know, Mom, are you with me? And there's hints in the background of this 12 to 16-year-old girl that says, may it be to me according to your word. Or as I've reinterpreted it, bring it. And we see throughout classic art this moment of Mary watching her son die. There's not a lot of, of, of stuff in the text that, that helps us, but we do see Mary here present with her child that is saving the world in a way that's completely foreign to the way that she had in her mind. And Rembrandt here makes this, this pretty neat. I love how just the darkness, it's a little bit more light when you're looking at it on your computer or in person, but you can see Mary in this lit up portion right over here. She's fainted from the stress and from the pressure and from the sadness and grief of watching her kid take the nails for all of humanity. On a week that is centered around love. It's difficult to put into terms those two pictures. John says, greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And this is what we see Jesus doing with the sin that is present in the world and the, the, the difficulties that arise because of that and the death that is so prevalent due to our misdeeds. Jesus, it says, he carries that weight to the cross and he buries it. And in the power of the resurrection, he allows us to see what life with him might look like. But we also see, if we do a little bit of reading in, an image of a mom's love for her kid. 
that will not allow her to be anywhere but by his side. And in this picture of a mom that has been with Jesus through some really weird times that has faced some potential difficulties in her own life and barriers and, and, and suffering, we see her demonstrating a commitment to Jesus that is worthy of emulation. This idea of love that we have is very romanticized where it's kind of reduced to the feelings that we have in our stomach and the way that certain person makes us feel when they come into the, into the room. And those are all great, but throughout the Bible, love has a, a deeper meaning that is rooted in commitment, trust. I'm not going anywhere without you. Whatever is in front of us, bring it. I think that we learn a lot from Mary if we don't reduce Mary to the, the lady in church that skips down the aisle in a white dress and a blue sash. When we see her as kind of that punk rock 12 to 16 year old that says, yep, I'm in, let's do it. Don't care what's gonna happen, we've got a job to do and I'll see it through even, even if it means suffering and pain and difficulty. My hope this Christmas season is perhaps to inspire some of us to have a moment where we can self-assess to see if this describes the relationship that we have with Jesus. Not just to quote the cliches, but to understand how rooted and committed we are to following him, come hell or high water, when the difficulties of life mount, are we able to say, may it be to me according to your will and according to your word? Are we able to say in, in full understanding of the consequences that might show up, bring it? Are we able to demonstrate our commitment and our love in a way that not only affects us but changes the world. Jesus is the reason for the season. But I hope that he is much more than that for us. I hope that he is every breath and every step and every move and every thought. And I hope that regardless of the things that we are facing, we say, bring it.